Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be with you today, and I'd like you to take your Bible open with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Let me uh, just make a few comments to you. I've met many of you with uh, SLS training, um, WOW Week. Some of you have not had an opportunity to meet yet. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I told someone uh, recently, um, I've been a pastor for 27 years, same church, and uh, it was hard to leave, but it was not hard to come. I uh, love very much what the Master's College is. I love being with young people, and it's my hope and prayer that over our time together that we can advance the gospel together, we can become more of what God has called us to be. Uh, I am your campus pastor. It's a new position. It's never existed at our college before. I'm a department of one, um, and I really don't have any boundaries. I can go into any office or any place or any dorm room from Rutherford Hall to the, uh, the dorm. Um, your president has a pastor's heart, and he's a busy man, and he wanted you to have the benefit of having a pastoral presence on campus. Um, we are not a church. I am not technically a pastor in the way that I once was. My function is pastoral, and I'm not endowed with uh, some kind of authority. I am your partner, and those who are working with you, rightful authorities in your life, whether they be your parents, whether they be your faculty, staff, uh, coaches, uh, those who lead you, your local church pastor. Uh, I am a spiritual support and a pastoral partner. I've met with a number of the local church pastors and in an effort to build relationship. And my heartbeat is to facilitate a kind of shepherding experience, a continuity of care, Joe likes to say, that will enable you to become what you hope to become while you're here at the Master's College. But I do hope to get to know you personally. My office is in the Bible department. When you walk right in, you'll see my office right there behind Kylie. So I hope you'll stop by, and I hope we'll have a chance to get to know one another. But I'm pleased to be here, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. My thoughts this morning... My heart to your heart, and it is life on life. Um, Austin Duncan will be with us on Wednesday, and I talked to him yesterday, as I have with uh, most of our speakers. And I asked them one thing. Tell us, tell our student body, what you wish you knew then that you know now. If there's anything you could pass on that has impacted your life and heart as a Christian, more than words, your own suke, your own soul. What is it that burns in you that you would say, you know what, if you don't get anything else, if you don't get anything else but this in your pursuit of Christ, let me share what has really impacted my life. And that's the spirit of where we're headed this year. And that's the spirit with which I want to begin this morning. And I want to cultivate, and here's my opening statement, I want to cultivate as your partner in pursuit of Christ an intentional heart. An intentional heart. I want you to see a picture. Kind of, I'm going to share a couple of pictures with you, some visual and then some out of God's word. I want you to see a picture. If you can deliver that picture for me. Oh, not that one. Can you give me the first one? 
It was like a high speed, there we go. Do you know what that is? That is unrivaled possibility and huge potential. That's a Ferrari Enzo, named for the founder of Ferrari. F1 technology, ceramic brakes, 660 some horsepower, nearly 500 foot-pounds of torque, zero to 60 and 3.4, top speed 217 miles an hour, one of 399 ever built in honor of the founder of Ferrari. This car has F1 technology, sequential shifting. This was a rare, unique, and unbelievable performance machine. If you bought one new, you had to be on a list. You had to be approved. You just couldn't buy one even if you had the 700 plus grand to purchase one. By the way, they're worth 1.5 plus now, million. That's a Ferrari Enzo. Unrivaled potential, amazing possibilities. And then you already saw the picture that I was going to show you second. Look at this one. There you go. You know what that is? That's a crying shame. 2006, that car was four years old. It rolled three times. The guy in it, he survived. Broken neck, broken ribs. Car destroyed. No longer 399. Actually, six have been destroyed worldwide. That's a crying shame. That's wasted possibility. That's wasted potential. That's a tragedy for those of us who love cars. I want to talk to you about another crying shame, another picture. It's a biblical picture. It's not the tragedy of a wasted thing. It's the tragedy of a wasted life. Now, I have an opinion. I have a presumption about you. Matter of fact, I was the first dean of men at the Master's College when John became the president, Dr. John. I came here to begin with because I believed in our vision and possibilities as a school in terms of what we were aiming at, which was to advance the power of Christ, the maturing of your life, so that you would leave here knowing what you believe, knowing why you believe it, and knowing how to live it out in love, that you would be a change agent, that you would be a life that would make a difference, and you can be and you should be, and you're in a strategic position, a wealth of potential available to you to do that. And some of you are going to achieve your potential. You're going to come out of this place with the training that you've had and the instruction that you've had and the relationships you've built and the opportunities you've experienced and you are going to be an agent of change in a world that desperately needs it. You're gonna become what you were built to be. And this morning, I wanna encourage all of you to become what you need to be. I wanna offer to you an essential ingredient necessary to achieve that. My title today is A Crying Shame. Subtitle, The Tragedy of Wasted Potential. It involves the tragedy of wasted life. I have in view the person who's not going to achieve their potential or may not. 
As a matter of fact, if we did inventory today and you were honest with yourself, you would say at the end of this time, you know what? I've got to make some adjustments. I've got to, I've got to create or pursue or promote an intentional heart. I have in view the person who has great potential and great possibility and yet could waste it. You have a unique opportunity here at our college. You're not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment. It's a great opportunity. And yet some of us could squander it. I've seen it. So really what I have in mind today is not the wasted potential of a high-performance vehicle. It's the wasted potential of a potentially impactful life, yours. So to that end, I want you to follow with me as we read 2 Chronicles 9 to kind of set a context. And I want you to partner with me today. I want you to enter into this picture that I want to unpack here in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Verse 22, so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man the, his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in his chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. He was the ruler over all the kings from the Euphrates River even to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. Now watch this, 27. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. And they were bringing horses for Solomon from Egypt and from all the countries. Look at the verse 30. Solomon reigned 40 years in Jerusalem over all Israel. Verse 31. And Solomon slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Now, look, everybody knows Solomon. You can't belong to the body of Christ or be engaged with the scriptures very long before you meet Solomon, wisest and wealthiest. And here's a text that records some of the vast wealth and wisdom that he possessed. Here's my question. What do you know about Rehoboam? Because almost everybody knows Solomon, but hardly anybody knows Rehoboam. And if you're going to look at Rehoboam based on who his father was and who his grandfather was, if you're going to ask the question and make a prediction, who is the most likely to succeed, one of the names that you ought to offer in answer to that question is Rehoboam. I want you to consider, first of all, what Solomon thought of Rehoboam, his father's hope. Often in the Old Testament, names were given with purpose. They were given based on associations. They were based on situations. They were based sometimes on the characteristics of the child. And often they were based on anticipations of what a child could become. Rehoboam's name, given by his father, that's almost always so. Sometimes a mother would offer it. She had a significant challenge in childbirth. It would be released to her to give the name to her child. 
but often it was the father who gave the name. And I'm presuming in this case, this was Solomon's favorite son. And this is the name that he gave him, Rehoboam. And that name means this, I think, in anticipation of a father's hope in the life of his son and all of the potential that existed there. Rehoboam means enlarger of the people. The expander, the, the, the bigger, the, the make it bigger, the make it better child. This is the one who will expand the kingdom in number. This is the one who will expand the kingdom in wealth. This is the one who will expand the kingdom in influence. This is a father's hope looking at a son and saying, this is the enlarger. This is the bigger one. This is the better one. And I'm already at the top of the world food chain, and my son ought to be able to eclipse me. It'd be like LeBron James naming his son Kobe Jordan James. Let me give him a big name. Potential. My son has potential. How could he not have potential? Consider his heritage. His grandfather, David. David, the giant slayer. J David, the Philistine defeater. J David, the inspired songwriter. David, the God chaser. David, Courageous leader, David, the man after God's own heart, Rehoboam's grandfather. Consider Solomon, which we read about, but let me highlight one more statement relative to his wisdom. But This is verse 29 in 1 Kings chapter 4. This presses in a little deeper. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. His fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. He was a scientist. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Most likely to succeed. Wouldn't you say Rehoboam has a shot at that? His grandfather, David, his father, Solomon, with all of his wisdom and the smartest guy on the planet, endowed not just with head knowledge, but wisdom from God. It was also Israel's golden age. So consider his father's hope, consider his heritage, and consider his time in history. We're looking at possibilities Listen to 1 Kings 4.20, Judah and Israel, this is the time when Rehoboam hits the scene. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And they were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms, from the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute, and they served Solomon all the days of his life. Provision for one day in Solomon's house was 90 gallons of flour and 180 gallons of meal and 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, fattened fowl every day. 
He had dominion over everything west of the river. That's the Euphrates from Tipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river. He had peace on all sides around him so that Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. All of those who came to Israel lacked nothing. All right, now here's what you've got. Possibilities. Big potential. Big heritage. A golden age. And I become the king. So, what do you think about the possibilities of Rehoboam? You've got to put him on the most likely potential list. Great possibilities. Sky's the limit. It's unlimited for him. If we were objective, we would say we ought to be reading the Proverbs of Rehoboam. We ought to be singing the Psalms of Rehoboam. We ought to be rehearsing the greatness of potential realized that he achieved. That's the beginning. Now I want you to turn to chapter 12, and let's go to the end of the story. Chapter 12, start at the beginning, go to the end, and then we'll unpack the important steps in between. All right, here we are, chapter 12. Let's bottom line. All that potential, most likely to succeed. Rehoboam did great. Let's see, verse 13, chapter 12. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem. And he reigned, and Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there, and his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Now watch these first four words, and he did what? Evil. I want us to move from the possibility to the reality. The reality is he did evil. The reality, God's commentary is despite all that potential, he didn't achieve it. He wasted it. He wasn't as wicked as Ahab. He wasn't as evil as Manasseh. The issue wasn't he didn't do anything positive. The issue is when his life was summarized, he wasted his life. Matter of fact, if you travel through the Old Testament and you look at kings and God's assessing of them, it comes out in one of two ways. He either did good in the sight of the Lord or he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He either achieved his potential or he wasted his potential. We are big on eulogies. God is big on realities. And the reality is there's going to be a life summary sentence. At the end of your education, at the end of your life, and all of your ministry and career investment, all of your family life and summary, your name will equal he did good in the sight of the Lord, she did good in the sight of the Lord, or they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It'll be accurate, it'll be infallible, it'll be unchangeable, and it will be irreversible. And that is the biggest crying shame of all. That a person can be here 
and end up there. There's a third thing I'd like to offer to you. Considering his possibilities, considering the reality, let's consider this question. Why does his life, life end this way? What are the contributing probabilities? What happened to him? Can I offer you some ideas? Let's try this. What went wrong with him? Why the wasted life? Well, it could have been his compromised and confusing father. Because his father, Solomon, said one thing, and at the end of his life, he did another. Listen to 1 Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, a Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from and after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. All right, here's a probability. The reason Rehoboam ended up where Rehoboam ended up is because he had a compromising, hypocritical father who said one thing and ended up doing another. He was very, very wise. He heard from God, and then he blatantly disobeyed God. How confusing would that be? Maybe the reason he did evil is because he had a compromised father. And here's the truth. Some of us have compromised fathers. Some of us have had compromised leaders in our home. Some of us are inclined to say, I can't achieve my potential. I may not realize what God's built me to be because my father isn't what he should be. He said one thing and he did another. One of the greatest obstacles I observe among young people today, and certainly in the church that I pastored, is the propensity to say, my problem is my father, or my problem is my mother. And that would be fair to say for Rehoboam as well, because notice what it said in verse 13 of chapter 12. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess. Well, just a comment about Nama. First of all, she's identified with the Ammonites, and the Ammonites had a god called Milcom, and that, or Molech. You may, it's listed different in different places. And he's the one in Leviticus and Jeremiah, that god, that false god, that idol, that's the one where parents would take their children and they would pass through the fire. They would offer their children as a burnt offering to that god. They were also known for, as a fertility cult. That is, they practiced immorality as an act of worship, fertility. They couldn't be more pagan. They couldn't be more detestable, which is what is said of Solomon. 
He followed his wives. Well, one, his favorite wife was Nama. She was the mother of his favorite son. Nama was an idolatress. Nama was a person who honored things other than God. She was an idolatrous mother. So maybe you could say that Rehoboam, the reason he bombed out is because he had a compromised father who was influenced by an idolatrous mother. And if an idolatrous mother can influence a powerful, wise father, how much more a young child? So maybe his deal was an idolatrous mother. Maybe she compromised him. Or look back at chapter 10. We really not unpacked his story yet, but Kind of what Rehoboam is known for is the biggest decision he ever had to make when he became king. And that is, how is he going to treat the people that God had entrusted him to lead? And the question on the table involved the northern tribes of Israel. And there was a man by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had fled to Egypt because he was a rival to Solomon. And Solomon knew it, and Jeroboam knew it. And Jeroboam was afraid for his life, so he had fled. He found out Solomon had died, so he comes back. And the northern tribes liked him because he was a valiant warrior. And so he's the spokesperson, and he comes to Rehoboam. And this is what you see. Verse 3, they sent and summoned him, and Jeroboam and all Israel came. And they spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we'll serve you. In other words, your dad was really hard. Taxes are high. Labor was forced. Ease up on us. And Rehoboam said to them, Return to me again in three days. In other words, let me think about it. And so the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, if you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But look at verse 8. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, here are key words, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So now we're talking about his friends, his peers. And he said to them, so so what do you think? What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us and the young men who grew up with him. See that emphasis? These are his friends, peers. They spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you made it You make it light for us. This is what you say to them. Now, this is the advice he's getting from his buddies. You tell those people who are asking this request, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Which, summarizing, and it's a vulgar statement. Summarizing, it is a disrespectful statement. Summarizing, it says, I'm more of a man than my father ever was. These were disrespectful comments offered by, I'm going to call them foolish friends. Verse 11, tell them this, whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. So here's the advice. Make it harder. Be harsh with them. They're disrespectful. They're vulgar. They're rude. And they're harsh. 
Verse 13, so the king, or 12 says, and Jeroboam and the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, and the king had, as the king had directed, saying, return to me on the third day. And the king answered them harshly, as he had been counseled by his foolish friends. And King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy, but I'll add to it. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. All right, now here's a third probability. Maybe he got where he got, not only because he had a compromised father. He wouldn't be the first one. Or maybe it's because of an idolatrous mother. Oh, maybe a mom that put something ahead of God, pursued things more important than God. Or maybe it's because he associated with foolish friends, disrespectful peers, vulgar peers, ignoble peers, maybe even violent peers, heartless, foolish friends. Hey, can I say something to you? One of the most defining influences and issues in your life will be those you choose as your friends. He that walketh with the wise will be wise. The companions of fools, and I'm going to argue that a fool is a simple-minded, open-minded, non-noble man or woman, young man or young woman, who has no respect for those who are older, no respect for authority, foolish, careless, callous, harsh, rude, disrespectful. Pick your friends carefully. Heart to heart, Harry to you. The distinguishing mark, one of them, in my life journey as a follower of Jesus Christ is marked by those I made friends with and walked with through my college years. I went to Brown University out of high school. I played college football. Brown University is the liberal Ivy. It's the Ivy League school where you go and you do anything you want. You take the classes you want. There were no general requirements. Seven courses a year, you pick them. 28 courses at the end of four years, you graduate. You pick them. You have what you have. You do what you want to do. You can live with who you want to live with. You can room where you want to room. You can do what you want. How would you like to go to a school like that? My mother didn't like me being at a school like that. How is it that at Brown University, my experience as a Christian was this way? I grew more in my two years at Brown. I transferred after that. Not because I was in a spiritual place. Brown is everything but a spiritual place. Nowhere near like the school that you have the privilege of being a part of. It was friends who I met who pursued the Lord and influenced me. Listen to me. Everybody who goes here isn't chasing what they ought to be chasing. Pick your friends. Pick the ones that are pursuing where you want to go. Find those relationships that are going to foster your potential that you can realize what God has built you to be. Do you understand that? Can you say amen to that? That's my way of saying you're still awake and with me. Pick your friends. 
It'll define you. These friends were foolish, and they clearly could have impacted his life. Listen to Proverbs 18, 6. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. That's what these guys were about. They were fools. So, what do you think? He did evil. Why did he do evil? Well, he had this compromised dad. He had this idolatrous mom. He had these foolish friends. That's why he bombed out. That's why all that potential was wasted. Are you ready for that conclusion? Let's go back to the verse that summarized his life, and we'll wrap this up with some thoughts about what the certainty is. We've talked about the possibilities. We've talked about the potential. We've talked about the reality. Back to chapter 12. Let's go back to 14. Verse 14. Because I didn't read the rest of the verse for a reason. Because I wanted to deal with all the possibilities and all the probabilities and all the things that we're inclined to say when we don't get where we're supposed to go. Heart to heart. The issue is not outward circumstances. External situations. The make it or break it, I become what I ought to be or I fail at being what I should be is an inward condition, not an outward situation. Watch the words. Verse 14, he did evil. Do you see the causal clause? Because, because he had a screwed up dad and an idolatrous mom and he had stupid friends. Anybody read that in their translation? You won't because what it says is he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Here's the certainty, not the probability. Rehoboam's wasted life, the crying shame that became his legacy, was not the product of outside influences. It was the product of interior condition of his heart. His convictions, his pursuits. His problem wasn't anybody outside. His problem was Rehoboam inside. Rehoboam did not set his heart to seek the Lord. I want to finish with you today by really punctuating and pressing into what does that mean? The word seek. Hebrew word darash means to intentionally pursue. It's used a number of times. It's a it's a Ugaritic Syriac Syriac word. It's used in Hebrew in various periods, and it means to actively intentionally pursue a person to make a connection for communication, relationship, direction, or inspiration. It is a intentional seeking. For a relation, it's often used of inquiring to the Lord where the kings would go to a prophet and say, I'm inquiring, I want to know, I want to connect with God, I want to know what God thinks, and they inquire of the Lord. They seek him for direction. They seek for relation. They seek for inspiration. It is a proactive seeking involving that pursuit. And then the The key word I want to highlight in this, though, is they did not. Now, some of your Bibles say prepare. The Hebrew word can mean prepare. It can mean put yourself in a position to seek the Lord. 
They didn't get ready. He didn't get ready to seek the Lord. And most of our translations probably say set. New American Standard ESV says he did not set. It means to establish or to resolve. I want to deal with that this way. He wasn't successful because he failed in two ways. He failed to seek the Lord by putting himself in a position to connect with God relationally, for inspiration, for direction, for his life satisfaction. He didn't put himself in position. Look over in chapter uh, 11, and you get the force and nuance of this flavor in verse 16. Uh, what, what happened is Jeroboam, they, they split. The 10 tribes said, no, we're not doing that. You want to make it harder for us? They split off. Jeroboam became their king. And they rejected all overtures from Rehoboam to fix it. Rehoboam actually sent one of his representatives to Jeroboam, presumably to say, hey, 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 we, we can work this out. And they stoned him. And Jeroboam chose to reject and jettison all the priests and all the Levites and all the God worship leaders and sent them away or restricted their function. So they, in order to worship God, needed to find a place where they could do that. That's the flavor you have in verse 16 of chapter 11. And those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. We can't worship here. We're seekers of God. We've got to put ourselves in a position where we can seek and worship God. Now, here's the first thought you've got to have if you're going to maximize and not waste your potential. Because I'm going to argue this is true for all of us. This is what I wish I'd have learned when I was where you are. The intentional priority, the everyday reality, wholehearted, all in, I am going to put myself in a position every day to chase God relationally for direction, for my inspiration, and for my satisfaction. I'm going to put myself, I'm going to prepare myself for that. Like these priests, I'm headed to a place where I can do that. I'm in position to accomplish that priority, the seeking of God in my heart. Now, you know how this works relationally. If you want to connect with somebody relationally, if you want to meet somebody on this campus, that's how it would work here at Masters. If you want to meet them, you've got to put yourself in positions to meet them. If you want to connect with them, if you want to engage in relationship with them, you've got to be strategic. I told my Bible study on Thursday night, when I saw my wife at our college, I decided I needed to meet her. Now, as a football player and as an athlete in high school, I ran, but I ran with a purpose that involved a ball or some goal. I never jogged for fun. But when I saw Karen and my intention was to meet her, in order for me to put myself in a position to do that, she was a jogger. She jogged every night around this loop on our campus. And guess what I became? A jogger. 
I jogged long enough to accomplish that goal. Now, you get that, right? If you want to seek relationship with somebody, you've got to put yourself in a position to connect with that somebody. Now, let's translate that over to God. I want to connect with God. I want to seek God. I want to experience God. What am I going to do? I'm going to put myself in a position where you connect with God. I connect with God where? In his word. Where do I connect with God? In prayer. Where do I connect with God? With his people. Just like these leaders of Israel, these I want to seek God leaders, we've got to go someplace where we can encounter God together, where we can pursue God together. Some of you will make a mistake And you will think that the master's college is the only environment necessary for you to seek and experience God. It is not. It is a great place of learning in class, out of class, classroom and dorm, chapel. But you need a local church as a part of the experience you have in order to experience what God wants to communicate to you as you seek him. You forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but you seek the Lord among his people on a weekly basis. Now look, look, obviously I've been a pastor a long time. Do not be callous or careless as it relates to church. You get a lot here. But this is not church. We do a lot of things church does. We do a lot of preaching and teaching what I'm doing now. But it's not the body of Christ in the way that the local church is. And you need a local church experience to complement your master's college experience. You need to be around older. See what, remember, you see that section where... You say, what what happened to Rehoboam? Well, first of all, he sought counsel with men before he sought counsel with God. There's no reference in this section that when the biggest question of his life came up, he, he sought the counsel of the elders. You say, that's good. Yeah, but what about God first? God seekers seek God counsel first. He didn't seek Guidance from God before he sought guidance from men, even if they were good men. And then he sought guidance from the foolish friends and he ignored the guidance of his elders. Do you know what it took to be an elder in Israel? You had to be noted as wise. You had to be regarded as trustworthy. You had to be somebody who was regarded with respect and honor and life experience. Somebody loyal to God. You need to put yourself in a position where you can seek God and gain benefit from the elders who God puts in your life, pastors and teachers, shepherds, who you can seek guidance from after you've sought guidance from God. Rehoboam's failure was his failure to put himself in a position to hear from God and seek I want to plant one more seed thought for you. And the other problem with Rehoboam, and you can read this later, he didn't stay in position even once he got there. 
I want you to look at the end of, well, verse 17, chapter 11. And we're coming down the home stretch. Rehoboam. Remember all these spiritual leaders come to Jerusalem to sacrifice because there they have the liberty of pursuing and seeking the Lord. Verse 17, and they strengthened the kingdom of Judah. They supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Now watch this, and you ought to highlight this, for three years. They walked in the way of David and Solomon, second time emphasized, for three years. Anybody remember how long Rehoboam reigned? 17 years. So if you want a bottom line on Rehoboam, he did good for three years. 18% of the time he was the leader, he was seeking the Lord. The other 80%, he couldn't be found seeking the Lord. And he, he derailed massively. Because here's the bottom line about seeking God. It's not a part-time piety and a part-time pursuit. It is a seek the Lord Daily. It is a seek the Lord continually. First Chronicles 16. Seek the Lord daily. Seek the Lord continually. Let those who seek the Lord chase him every day. Not just once in a while. Most of us in our God seeking are not as resolved as we need to be. I'm a Christian. I'm your brother. I'm 57 years old. I've sat in chairs like you're sitting in and in stands like you're seated in now. You will not get where you need to go unless you set your heart. Not just put yourself in a position to hear from God and meet God, but stay there. Get in position and stay there. Oswald Chambers, a writer of devotionals that many of us have heard about, he said it's not the amazing days that define a Christian, it's the ordinary days. So here's my question for you. What are the probabilities for you? What are the possibilities? What could your life be? Let me tell you what it will be most defined by. Not anything around you, but the convictions of your heart right here. The one that says, God, I want you more than I want anything. I want you on a daily basis, and I'm going to put myself in a position to meet with you. And God, I'm going to remove anything that prevents that. Can anybody say amen? Turn over to, um, this is the last verse we're going to read. Turn over to chapter 15, fast forward, grandson of Rehoboam. This is Asa. His dad lived three years as king after Rehoboam died. Asa becomes king in verse 2, chapter 14, says he did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Verse 17, chapter 15 his heart was blameless all of his days. Now that's where you want to land. You want to land with he did good and right in the sight of the Lord and he was blameless all of his days. He didn't waste his potential. He achieved it. Well, look at how that happened. Chapter 15, 
Verse one, the spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa. And he said, listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, there's our key word, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. I just want you to think about this. If your heart's with him, he's with you. That means it's not just lip service, your heart, it's sincerely. If you sincerely desire him, he'll sincerely allow you to find him. Seeking involves a measure of authentically and sincerely seeking. Verse 4, but in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. There's an element of desperation, too. There's a sincerely and there is a desperately involved with seeking. You know, you need God every day. You're needier than you know. You're weaker than you think. There's a life lesson Harry Walls has learned. My heart to your heart. I am prone to self-dependence. Verse 8, Asa heard these words. It's basically the promise is God will take care of you if you follow and seek him. Verse 8. Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet spoke. He took courage. Now, here's what I want you to notice. And he removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of which the Lord was in front of the porch of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He removed the idols and he restored worship. And then verse 11, they worshiped lavishly. Verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart. So you've got this formality. You've got this idols removed, this exclusivity. You've got this wholehearted commitment. Verse 14, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets, with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath. They had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Here's where I'd like to land with you today. Whatever seeking is, it involves getting rid of the stuff that keeps you from God, the idols, establishing worship with God, making promise with those who are seeking the same thing. And doing it with a full heart saying, God, I'm all in. I want to experience you. I want to seek you. I'm excited to do it. And we're committed to doing it together. Seek the Lord and set your heart. And no matter what it is, look at verse 16. And he removed Micah, or Makah, the mother of King Asa, from the position of queen mother because she'd made a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down the horrid image and crushed it and burned it at the brook of Kidron. It's really his grandmother. That word mother can be used. It's, it's Rehoboam's wife. It's his grandmother. It doesn't matter who they are. If they need to go, they need to go. If they're a friend, you may need to distance yourself that they're not seeking the Lord. If it's a habit, you need to let it go. If it's a relationship, you need to step back. No matter what it takes, I'm going to seek the Lord and I'm going to remove every obstacle. Can you say amen to that? Even if it's the queen mother. I read an interesting story that reminded me of the way some of us in Christianity can be. It's a preservation project. 
the Izu Islands off the coast of Japan, a Japanese researcher by the name of Dr. Fumio Sato is trying to preserve and promote the albatross, which is in jeopardy, endangered species. And in order to do that, they put out 100 decoys. Their hope is to attract albatrosses who will come and breed. Dr. Sato says he's, he's concerned about one albatross, a five-year-old named Deco, that for two years has tried to woo a wooden decoy. He's built fancy nests, he's fought off rival suitors, and he spends his days standing faithfully by the wooden decoy's side. Sato writes, he seems to have no desire to date real birds. <laughs> and you did what I did, you laugh. But then this is the way I want to close. That is funny. But some of us are seeking and courting the decoy of the world. And we're missing real life and real relationship with a real God. A crying shame is we would trade the real thing for a lesser thing. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege of preaching. Thank you for the time in your word. I thank you for this picture, Rehoboam. May he stimulate and inspire through his negative life example to challenge us to become the men and women that you want us to be, that none of us will be the tragedy of wasted potential, but the realization for your glory of all that we were meant to be. God, we love you and we need you. And to that end, I, I ask that you help us to direct our hearts to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.